Well, if you would, would you take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 52. Psalm 52. When you get to Psalm 51, all the way through Psalm 59, it is David recounting uh, different points in his life. Psalm 51, he is recounting his sin against God with his adultery with Bathsheba and the subsequent execution of Uriah. Psalm 52, the psalm we will look at this evening, recounts his troubles with Doeg, the Edomite. Psalm 53 is possibly referencing uh, his troubles with Nabal. Psalm 54, with the Ziphites that turned on David. Psalm 56, David's attempt to leave the Philistines. Psalm 57, where David is hiding in a cave. Psalm 59, where Saul sent spies to kill David in his own home. So we're dealing with these psalms that are recounting the troubles of David and his response when he faced troubles. And as we come to Psalm 52, let me just give you the scenario that maybe perhaps we could put ourselves in his shoes for a second. Just imagine that the government was sending people to have you executed because of your righteousness, because of your identity with God. And just imagine this, is that you're able to escape the clutches of the government, but let's say several, like 85, pastors were executed by the government. Now, if you can imagine such a horrible situation, then we can put ourselves in the shoes of David. Because that's exactly the response to the situation that we read in Psalm 52. You know, there's a subscription in, at the beginning. It says, to the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doeg, the Edomite, came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. So this is recalling that situation where this man goes and commits treason against God's anointed one. So beginning in verse 1, let us hear the word. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good, and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The righteous shall see and fear, and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge? but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. 
I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. I want us to see this divided up into three sections. The first four verses will be, we see boasting in evil. Verses 5 through 7, we see boasting that is destroyed or broken. And then finally, we see boasting in the Lord in verses 8 and 9. And so we begin with boasting in evil. You'll notice the question comes up, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Now, this is going to be centered around the words of this man, this man, Doeg. Notice what it says of him in the text in verses 1 through 4. You boast of evil, the tongue plots destruction. It says of his mouth that it is a worker of deceit, that he's a liar, that he's deceitful in his tongue. So this is also describing the speech of this man, this Edomite, that turns on David. And so David asks the question, why do you boast of evil? This is to call him to consider his sin. And he calls him mighty man. We shouldn't take that as a compliment. Actually, this is David mocking him. He's mocking him, saying, you who were so brave to kill priests, you who were so tough to to raise the sword against those who have never raised a sword, you think you're tough? Almighty man, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And so this is a question that Doeg is to consider. Specifically, that he boasts of evil, that he would take pride in the fact that he slaughtered so many people that were defenseless. But there's something greater at work here. In his slaughter of those priests that we'll read of in a second, he had chosen Saul over David. David was the anointed one of God. David had already at this point been anointed, and now Saul is... Uh, chasing after David, trying to kill David. And so it was an unstable time within the government of Israel. There was instability. There was confusion. David was constantly on the run, though he was faithful to Saul. Saul was continually trying to kill him. And we come to this scene where David is hungry, so he comes to the priest and asks for some food. They give him food. And to witness this, all that's taking place, these priests that are helping David, who's running from Saul, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. So this is according to the Lord's providence that this unfolds. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Now, when we read that phrase, the chief of Saul's herdsmen, don't think of it that he was out there herding cattle. Actually, this would be an exalted position in the government. 
You think of like how we have positions of the government. This is the minister of defense, or this is the secretary of state. This would be a a type of position. He was the minister of agriculture, if you will, in the government of Saul. So he's not just some guy that's out there herding sheep. He has a position, an exalted position, within Saul's government. And the Lord happens to arrange it to where he is there the day that David is running from Saul and seeking help from these priests that have no idea that David is on the lamb from them. And so we read in verse 9 of chapter 22 of 1 Samuel, said, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. So you see what Doeg's doing here is David had been on the run. He was defenseless. He was hungry. So he seeks out the priest and receives help from them. And as Doeg recounts the story to Saul, he says, uh, they were actually feeding him. And oh, by the way, Goliath's sword they gave to David. So what's this Doeg doing here? He's creating a scenario in Saul's mind where Saul now is thinking, wait, these priests are conspiring against me to help David, and David wants that sword to kill me. David wants to come after me. And so what happens in this? Saul orders all the priests to be executed. And Saul's servants won't do it. But guess who will? You look at verse 18. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priest. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priest, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. Eighty-five ministers of the Lord are struck down by the sword of Doeg the Edomite. And he would boast of this. This is why David says, Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. Not only ought he ought to be ashamed of himself for such an egregious, horrible, wicked sin, but the fact is, is that he had chosen sides. He had chosen Saul. And he had chosen the worldly power that came with choosing Saul. Here was the choice. Saul's king, he's chasing David. David's running from him. David may be the anointed of the Lord, but he's constantly on the run. Saul's more powerful. So where am I going to line up? Calculating what's going to be best for me at this point. So he chooses Saul. But notice what it says in the next line. It's interesting because as you read verses 1 through 4, it's all about the evilness of the tongue of Doeg. But right in there after that statement of, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man, you read this little sentence, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Why is that there? Why is that placed in there about all of these words about Doeg? Then he states something of God's 
love that is unchanging. I think it's to remind us as we read this, as the wicked man that comes after David, it's to say you are fighting against the immutable God that has chosen his servant. Boasting of evil is equivalent with opposing God. While you go after God's people, God's love remains unchanged and is always upon his people. But what do we see of Doeg? What does it say of him? He boasts of evil, meaning he boasts of that which is fallible. He boasts of that which is the antithesis of God. But he, we, we see something here. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man, this man that would embrace evil, in contrast to the steadfast love of God that endures forever, that endures all the day? It is this, is you have in the first sentence something instead of, of what we may experience here and now, compared in contrast to something that is unchanging and that has eternal consequences to it. And so as we put ourselves in this, between these two sentences, will we choose the anointed one of the Lord? Or will we, like Doeg, seek temporal pleasures? That was the choice. That was the choice that Doeg had. And he chose temporary worldly pleasures. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 2. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. Doeg's words meant certain death for David. And it was the death of 85 priests. Now, this is what it says, your tongue plots destruction. What it means to plot is to be calculated, to think, to meditate. He is one that is, is, is looking to see how he can advance his own situation. And so he plots to think about how destruction or ruin will come. And it certainly was destruction for those priests. And notice the description of his tongue. It's like a razor. Now, if you were going to go into battle, what would you rather have, a razor or a sword? You'd rather have a sword because it causes uh, maximum damage. It inflicts the greatest punishment. It will take off a head. But what does a razor do? It just slightly wounds the person in really subtle ways, doesn't it? That's the picture. This is a subtle danger of the tongue. One that is plotting. And so for Doeg, his plotting of destruction was that with plotting the death of David and those priests. Let me ask you this to think about it. For Doeg, when he's plotting destruction, would he have considered it destruction for himself? No. He would have actually seen the destruction of others as an, a means to advance himself. He sought to benefit from it. 
So why do, why do people plot destruction of others? Well, in this situation, we would say self-gain. You think about that. Think about all the unfairness and all of those thing, injustices that we see in the world that come at, from the hands of wicked, powerful people. And we, under, we always ask this question, why, why do they do that? What's the one answer we always say that's that, that, that cliche phrase? Follow the... Doeg plots destruction of a people group, but for him it's not destruction. He gets to what? Advance. Oh, they won't kill the priest for you, Saul? I'll do it. I'll go kill him for you. Trying to work his way out. Trying to get momentary favor of the king. But as he does this, he's opposing Yahweh. Do we ever seek momentary pleasure at the expense of who we are in Christ? We see him and we say, well, we would never do anything wicked like that. Well, that's good. But do we ever seek momentary pleasure at the expense of who we are in Christ? He goes on to say, you love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You, you love is an expression of the heart. Your heart loves evil. You love lying more than you do of speaking what is true. And the heart can speak, consistently speaks from what comes out of it, what flows out of the heart. You see in Matthew chapter 12, in verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So why did he love to speak evil? Well, because that was what was in his heart. He was evil. He loves evil more than good. He loves lying more than speaking what is truth. And you look at verse 4, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. His words literally led to destruction of people. With just one word, Doeg was in the position of seeing people executed. That was the power he had, and it came from his heart. He had a murderous heart. He had hatred in his heart. And when he was able to speak and cause pain, whenever he was able to cause suffering, it brought him joy. Again, you just think about the wickedness that you see in the world from very powerful people, and you wonder, how could they, how could they be so resp- be responsible and, and be okay with the wickedness that they have committed to people? Well, actually, we see in Doeg here that it actually brought him joy. Wicked people are going to do wicked things. Wicked men that are in powerful positions, guess what they're going to do? They're going to do wicked things. And consider what we're, we're told in the Proverbs. Proverbs 28, verse 15 says, This, like a roaring lion or a charging bear, is a wicked ruler over a poor people. 
In Proverbs 29, 2, when the righteous increase, the people rejoice, but when the wicked rule, the people groan. And in Isaiah, we read this of wicked rulers. Isaiah 10, verse 1, Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees, and the writers who keep writing oppression, to turn aside the needy from justice, to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, and that they may take, make the fatherless their prey. You see, it's not only for momentary gain that wicked people do wicked things, particularly powerful wicked people. They actually have a joy in doing it. They like it because it flows from a wicked heart. That's rather depressing, isn't it? Not only to see this as an example in this character named Doeg, the Edomite, that he would be so wicked that he would murder people, that he would use his power, that he would oppose the people of God, but then also to know that, wait, we still see that going on in the world today, that there's wicked people that do wicked things that oppose the people of God and hurt them. You think of the persecuted church. You think about how Christianity is mocked today. You consider laws that are being passed that will affect the church. And you go, boy, why do wicked people do wicked things? Well, not only for self-gain, but they actually enjoy it. If that gets you down, then God's Word has something to say. Look at verse 5. But... You rejoice in hurting people. You enjoy it. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Let me just show you the weight of this verse here because it's actually quite descriptive. It's showing that certain destruction is coming his way. And here's what we have to see from this, is this is the reality of the situation. Did Doeg have power, a certain power, uh, to kill David and to kill those priests? Yes. Was he a powerful person? And as we'll see, he was rich as well. Yes, he had all of those things. He had power, he had influence, he could uproot people. But there's something about his power is that it was temporary, that it was derivative, it was given to him from above. God, by his providence, even put him in a place to be able to witness it all, which means that his power was limited. He's opposing David, the anointed of God, the one through whom will come the Messiah, And so what this verse tells us is Doeg is a fool. While we see powerful people, while there was this powerful Doeg and this powerful Saul going after God's people, actually what this verse tells us is the reality of the situation is that's just temporary. There's something far greater and more significant that they're going to face than the temporal pain we may face here and now. He's going to face everlasting punishment versus those priests. As horrible as it was, it was just 
temporary. We need to consider eternity. Because the doegs of the world, they consider one thing, and that is the here and the now. But we are striving for eternity, aren't we? We're going towards eternity. Now notice the words, will break you down. That's in the imperfect tense. The imperfect tense is describing an unfolding action. Now, put it together. What it says here, he will break you down. That is the unfolding action. Now notice, it's qualified forever. What's hell going to be like? What's eternal punishment away from God going to be like? It will be an unfolding of this breaking down for all of eternity. That's the weight of this verse. When you think of the significance of that, what this man chose in his opposition of God is just a blink of time, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're talking about it now, 4,000 years after the fact. And he's just now beginning to realize that he hasn't taken one second off of eternity in hell. That's a powerful description of God's eternal wrath as unfolding forever from an infinite God. All that he held, his living, will be uprooted from him. And it says this in verse 6, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. Those whom were under his power, actually it says they shall laugh at him. And that laughing is not a laughing of humor, but a solemnity about it. And I want you to notice it's a future tense. Meaning they will laugh at him before the calamity actually takes place. And so this is a warning against him. Now if you begin to feel sorry for Doeg about all that he's going to face and, and, and right now is facing in an eternal hell, and then you think, well, people will laugh at him. Don't forget who this guy is that he wiped out 85 families. Did he oppose the Messiah by opposing David? So if we're to feel sorry for him, just remember this is speaking of the downfall of an evil man. One commentator says, those he wronged will be satisfied when justice is done upon him. Does that strike you as strange that the scripture actually tells us that we would actually laugh at the calamity of them. And again, it's not a humorous laugh where it's not like we're hearing a, a joke and laughing. There's a solemn weight to this that we should feel. But the Lord actually does that for his people. You consider for a second Esther. And you remember Esther, how Haman plotted to kill all the Jews, 
and plotted to hang Mordecai on the gallows? Haman was a wicked, wicked man. Haman was much like, had the view of the Jewish people as Hitler did. He was evil. He wanted to wipe them all out. That's interesting what happens to him. It says in Esther chapter 7, in verse 9, Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. See, the king recognizes that Haman is wicked. He goes, what am I to do? And one of his attendants says, oh, Haman made a gallow to kill Mordecai, and it's at his house right now. Verse 10 says, and the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Actually, it's through horrible circumstances, a sweet reality for Haman that he was able to see the enemies of God avenged. And the Psalms are full of verses like this. We have to take this with an understanding that we don't rejoice over the death of anyone. But it is to show us that there is coming a vindication for God's people. And it's a weighty one that we ought to pay attention to. Notice verse 7. This is what they will say. This is the laughing. See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. So three things are noted here. He would not make God his refuge. He did not trust God, and not trusting in God is to reject God. He actually utterly rejected God by trying to kill David. But there's something here to consider about this, and that he rejected God. He was an Edomite. He was not one of the covenant children, but yet he's held responsible for rejecting God. He did not make God his refuge. That is to say, he did not have faith in God. He did not trust in God. But rather, he made something else his refuge. Notice what it says. He trusted in the abundance of his riches. His riches were through siding with Saul. His riches were through that temporary wealth that he could acquire at the expense of his soul. Think about that. All of the worldly riches at his hand, and it cost him his soul. Sound familiar? Jesus said this. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Does Jesus ask that question? Because isn't that our temptation constantly? 
is to look at temporary joys, temporary pleasures, temporary happiness, temporary things, materialistic things, and think, I'm going to find my happiness in those things, and I'm going to pursue those things instead of God. That's exactly what Doeg did. As he chose the temporary things that he could get, he sought refuge in his riches. He sought refuge in his own destruction. He seeks safety in his plotting against David. He looks at David and says, David's on the wrong side of history. So I'm going to choose Saul. The very thing that will eventually bring him down is what he finds comforting. Think about that. The very thing that will destroy him is the very thing that he finds comfort in. The stupidity of sin, isn't it? It always promises but never delivers. It gives us a check that it can't be cashed. That's sin. That's what he chooses here. Then you see finally boasting in the Lord. David turns now to himself and he says, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of, the, of God forever and ever. Whereas Doeg faces eternal forever and ever punishment. Actually, David says that forever and ever he trusts in the love of God. It's amazing that it's in that covenant love of God that he trusts forever. That is to say that he trusts God and what God has promised him. Why can David boast in this? Why can David be the one that boasts in God? Look at verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. How is it that David can boast in this while he's facing persecution? Why is it that David could boast in God when things did not look good for him? Same way you can when things don't look good for you, and that is by faith. It's the instrument of our empty hand is the means God uses in preserving his own Now, David was special in God's plan of redemption, but you are in Christ. You likewise are secure as David. And so regardless of the situations that we face, there's the steadfast love of God that is upon us. That is what we trust in. That is where we place our trust. That is where we put our empty hand of faith. And the beauty of this is, despite the circumstances, what what does David do? He thanks God. Wait, it was God we read in 1 Samuel that put Doeg in the place to rat David out in the first place. But what does he say? I will thank you. God's providence is always good. Even when we're facing setbacks. And we're just reminded here of what he says in verse 8 the steadfast love of God. It doesn't go away, it remains upon God's people. 
Do we always have a cause to praise the Lord? Yeah. Even when things look bad, is there cause for our hearts to rejoice in the Lord? Yes. Why? His steadfast love is forever. A couple things I just want to point out. We see this as an opposition against David, but we have to remember that David was the anointed one of God, chosen of God, to be the line through whom the Messiah would come. That's why you see Romans chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus Christ came from the, according to the flesh from David. So to oppose David was actually to oppose God himself. Let's bring that to a correlation to our time. To oppose the church of Christ, which is called the body of Christ, is to actually oppose God himself. David felt temporary pain and suffering. Well, what we're reminded of here is it would not succeed. You see that here's the thing is that there are those that want to oppose the church now and are opposing the church now. Again, every Wednesday night, we pray for the persecuted church. Where churches all across the world are facing severe persecution and death. But those governments, those wicked governments that are opposing Christ's church, aren't just opposing people. They're opposing God. And we see their end here. We may face temporary suffering, but ultimate victory is in our sights because Christ has obtained the victory. And so be encouraged by this. Our Lord is a valiant warrior. He tells us that we may face troubles in this life, but that He conquers over all. And one day, in fact, we too will sing over our tormentors. We see in Revelation chapter 19, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, and salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. That will be our song one day over those that oppose the church of Christ. Well, there's something else I want us to notice here is if this laughing aspect made you uncomfortable. Let me put it in these terms. In verse 6, it says, The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. It might be that because that is before the calamity takes place, that that could actually be a means of bringing the wicked to repentance. Doeg is the epitome of the wicked man. He boasts in evil. And his end is near. 
His end is impending upon him. And the people of God look by calmly and simply just laugh. That could be the very means that brings them to repentance. Let us think about that. How do we respond in the face of wicked people? Does it break us down and bring us to an end as if they had power over us? Or are we able to sit back and say, our God's in control. Whatever you want to do to me, God will do far worse to you. You, you think you've got the upper hand, but actually uh, you're already facing judgment. How do we respond in the face of wicked? Finally, the characteristic that is really brought out of Doeg is that he boasts in evil. And so do we ever do the same? Do we ever boast in things that ought to bring us shame? Do we ever recollect our times before Christ fondly or where we wander from Christ fondly? Do we, do we ever boast in things um, that, that we regret? We ought not to. We ought to recognize that in Christ, we've been forgiven and washed of those things. May we never be like Doeg that boasts in wickedness and boasts in evil. But may we rather, like David, say, I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. So may our boasting be in the Lord and the Lord only for what the Lord has done for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you For the joy of salvation we may have in Christ and the joy we may have even in turbulent times, the joy we may have even in suffering, I pray that, Father, we would always be reminded that you are sovereign over all things, that your providence is perfect. And may we remember from this lesson here that we see uh, that was written from the hands of your servant David of, of how he approached adversity. May we likewise face it like he did. More importantly, may we face it like Christ did, without sin. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.